my name is Amy, and I'm the pastor here. And uh, to get us started this morning, I have a question for the kids here. I mean, it could be a question for anyone, but I'm particularly curious to hear from the kids because I know as the summer has gone on, some weeks you're here, some weeks you're not here, and I'm guessing that the weeks you're not here, you are at the beach or in the mountains, somewhere fun, on vacation, maybe a camp. And so I'm curious, just show of hands, have you gotten out of the city this summer, kind of away to the beach or the country? Yeah, cool. And when you're out there, do you ever get to stay up late enough that you see the sky get really dark? Yeah, and this is not a hard one, but when it's really dark, when you're outside of Arlington or Alexandria, do you see more stars or fewer stars? Or, yeah, that is the correct answer. So here in Arlington or D.C. or Alexandria, if we were to look up and count every star we could possibly count, we could probably get a few dozen, like maybe 50 or so. But out in those dark vacation skies, camp skies, mountain skies, where the sky is really dark, we might be able to see like 2,000, 3,000, some people think maybe even 5,000, but actually no one's ever been able to count them all. But even that is just this tiny fraction of what we see in our galaxy, the Milky Way, which actually has hundreds of billions of stars. And then that's just one galaxy, and there are billions and billions and billions of galaxies in our universe. And this week, those galaxies were actually in the news. And so kids, we're gonna look at some pictures from those and I would invite you to draw some stars, some galaxies, some of what you've seen on vacation, some of what you wish you would see on vacation. Um, but NASA has this new telescope that is giving us clearer, deeper, further images from space. And the first images came to us this week and they were in the news. So it's called the Webb Telescope. And these are the farthest away things we've ever been able to see. So Nadia, if you want to show the first, yeah. So this one is this cluster of thousands of galaxies. And what is really cool about this is that this little slice of sky that's up on the slide is actually the amount of universe that if you were to take a grain of sand and put it between your fingertips and hold it up to the sky, and then blow it up. That's how much this is. And there are thousands of galaxies in this picture. And then on this next one, this one's what's called the Cosmic Cliffs. It's in the Carina Nebula. And it looks like these mountains and valleys, but it's actually this giant star nursery. So it's where stars are being born. And when these stars are born, and when they're growing, they put out so much radiation. You can imagine like the energy of the babies in the room, but in star form. And they put so much of that out that it is carving these new cliffs and it's pushing the gases and the dust to make these pillars. It's creating this new landscape that we see. And normally we can't see all that birth happening and all that's being pushed aside, but this new telescope is so sensitive to light that it can see through all that cosmic dust and see what's there. 
Well, you're probably wondering by this point why we were talking so much about stars. They have nothing to do with the readings, but partly it's because at Incarnation, we just love the word wonder. We love wondering and marveling together. And the news has just given us something so full of wonder this week that I thought it'd be nice to pause and worship and enjoy it. But also, I'm going to be preaching from that text from Genesis 18 that Weber read a few minutes ago. In Genesis 18, so much of Genesis really, it is this story that is so ancient and so deep and mysterious. It feels really far off. It feels really full of wonder and it feels beyond our capacity to comprehend. It feels a bit like looking into deep space, but having this cosmic dust that makes it a little hard to know, what am I seeing here? So in Genesis 18, there is this story that asks questions that never get answered, and it leaves a lot of things unexplained. The other interesting thing is that Genesis 18, in its own way, is a story about the birth of stars. So, to make sense of that, if we back up a few chapters into Genesis 15, which we read a couple months ago, I preached about it, uh, it was a very sort of bloody sermon, there were animal carcasses involved, not in real life, but in our imaginations. So back there in Genesis 15, God had invited Abraham to go out under the stars, to look up at the sky, to count as many as he could, and then he had promised, your descendants are going to be as many as those stars. You are going to have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, generation and generation and generation, more than everything you can see under this dark desert sky. And then those children are going to bless the world. But there is this problem with the promise, the same problem that Weber read for us earlier. Abraham and Sarah are really old. They're almost 100 years old, and Sarah has always been childless. And so this dream of having children and grandchildren, it died a long time ago for them. There is nothing in their reality that would suggest to them that this story has any possibility of coming true, that there is anything solid about this promise that God made. It just doesn't make sense to believe it. And yet under these stars, Abraham, against all reason, believes the Lord. And that moment in scripture becomes like this star nursery this place where a birth is promised, and this birth is going to disrupt the universe. It's going to carve out these new landscapes. It's going to do something new and beautiful and different, and also something a little hard to understand, a little bit far off. That was chapter 15. And then between there and today's chapter 18, Abraham and Sarah start to doubt the promise. They start to take it into their own hands. Then God renews the promise. They renew their promise. There's lots to unpack there, but we're not going to go there today. But that brings us up to today, which is chapter 18. And it begins really mysteriously. The Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre. And Abraham looked up and saw three men standing at him. 
So right away, we have this mystery. Is it the Lord or is it three men? And the answer the text gives us is just yes. There is one and there are three. And all through this story, it goes back and forth between addressing them as him and them, you and y'all. Uh, the singular and plural back and forth. So there is one and there are three. And some interpreters see here this early picture of the Trinity, the idea that God is one God in three persons. Some see here maybe one of the visitors is God and the other two are people or angels or angels who look like people. And there is something later in the chapter that would make sense of all that. But we don't know. We don't know and we aren't told. So the only response that we really know how to give to this text is just to receive it as a mystery and believe it. There is one Lord who appears. There are three visitors who appear. And then it's in the heat of the day, the sun is high, and this is another mystery. This is not normally the time of day that visitors are wandering around. This is when it's hottest and everyone is resting. And that's what we find Abraham doing. He's resting in the shade right outside his tent. He's probably half asleep. But these three visitors startle him awake. He jumps up. He runs out to meet them. He bows to the ground in front of them. And he begs them to come, to come sit at his table, to stay with them. It's this really generous welcome, this really extravagant hospitality. And this whole part of the story feels rushed. There's this sense of hurry as we sort of watch Abraham scurrying around. He's fetching water and yogurt and milk and bread. He's asking Sarah to prepare cakes. He's asking his servant to prepare a calf. This is stuff that takes hours and hours of preparation. All so that these mysterious strangers, the Lord, these visitors, so that they will sit and be refreshed and be well fed. And as this feast is spread, as the table is set, the visitors recline, they rest, and Abraham stands back at a distance under a tree. He takes the posture of the servant. It's like an ancient Hebrew butler. He's just there, ready to wait on them if they need him. And now all of the energy all of the hospitality, all the movement and activity of this story just stops. We come to this place of expectant waiting at the table. The Lord, the three, are reclining and feasting. Abraham stands poised in the distance. And we wonder, what will happen next? Into this moment of expectant waiting, the visitors ask a question. Where is your wife, Sarah? Somehow they know her name. And Abraham answers that Sarah is just inside the tent. And one of the men says, I will return to you in due season, and Sarah will have a son. Now Sarah is just inside the tent, close enough that she hears this. And we can imagine her looking down at these 90-year-old hands of hers that are aching and tired from making cakes all day looking down at this wrinkled body that has never housed children. And Sarah laughs. And this divine visitor hears her laughter and says, 
Why did Sarah laugh? Is anything too hard for the Lord? It's not a rebuke, it's a question. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And that is the question at the center of this story. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Some of the translations say, is anything too wonderful for the Lord? And some say, is anything impossible for the Lord? At this point, Abraham and Sarah have heard the promise, the promise of descendants, the promise of blessing the world, but all they see is their present reality. And if they think rationally about this, they have to accept that what their eyes and their experience tells them new birth is not going to come from these bodies. But God's not inviting them to think something rational. <coughs> He's inviting them to believe something impossible, something irrational, something that is too hard, and that is too wonderful. It's anything impossible for God. This is the central question of their faith, it's a central question of ours. If we yes, or if we answer yes, something is impossible for God, then God's not yet God to us. But if we answer no, nothing is impossible for God, that requires this step of risky, very irrational faith. It means entrusting ourselves, everyone we care about, this world, everything to the God for whom nothing is impossible. What's left this open question, it doesn't get answered in Genesis 18. It's this question of faith that actually keeps getting asked again and again, all through the history of God's people, all through the scriptures. This question is asked and answered as the people face just impossible odds when it feels like their back is against the wall, when they feel like God's abandoned them, when they are in exile, when hope seems foolish, when they're facing death, again and again, is anything impossible for God? Is God God? This promise of blessing has been issued, and this question of faith has been asked. But then there is this long wait before we see it fulfilled. We see the start of it in Genesis 21, a few chapters later, when this baby boy is finally born to Sarah. She names him Isaac, which means laughter. That laugh of disbelief and wonder inside the tent, it gives way to this real laughter of celebration. She says, God has brought laughter for me, and everyone who hears will laugh with me. And I love that this story of God's people, the story of God blessing the world, the story of everything he's going to do from Genesis on, that it begins with laughter, with this just infectious spreading joy, this celebration that draws more people in. But that birth, that laughter, that's still just the very beginning of the story of God remaking the world. Those other promises, the descendants as numerous as stars, the blessing of all people, those are big promises, and those are still a really long way off. I think of it a little bit like the light that it takes each of these stars 
that travels thousands and thousands of light years across the universe before we ever see it. We're still waiting for the light from this promise to reach us. We're still waiting for it to come to fulfillment, to its full revelation. We're still waiting for the world to be set right. And in the meantime, the wait feels really long. And the wait has always felt long. Thousands and thousands of years go by from this promise, from this birth, from this hope of blessing. And creation is just groaning under sin and sorrow, evil and death and pain. And the blessing of God continues to feel far away, beyond our reach, beyond our sight. And that call to believe that God is God just feels irrational, feels so risky and so foolish. But then, in history, as the light is traveling, as things seem dark, suddenly into all the darkness and the hopelessness and the confusion of the world, suddenly this light breaks through. Jesus, who is called the bright morning star, Jesus, who is the light of the world, Jesus is birthed in this dusty little corner of the universe. And suddenly that promise of God becomes clear and alive and visible again. And Jesus' birth has these echoes from Genesis 18. Because again, there is an angel who's promising a woman this impossible, irrational news that she is going to give birth to a son. This time the woman is not old and barren, she is young and poor, she's just a nobody, she's not married. And again, the angel ends this announcement by saying, nothing is impossible with God. But Mary doesn't laugh. Mary actually entrusts her whole life to the God who does the impossible. And Luke's Gospel tells us Mary believed there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. And Jesus is born into this act of trust. And Jesus grows up, he teaches the kingdom of God is near, he heals people, he befriends sinners, he brings the blessing of God near to people who felt like they were outside the promise, like there was no hope left. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promised blessing, and that fulfillment will lead him all the way to the cross. But just before his death, Jesus prays in the garden, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup of suffering from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. We see Jesus entrusting his life all the way to his suffering and death, to the God who does the impossible, the God who raises death to life, the God who now holds that life out to us to embrace and receive with irrational faith. The God who is still speaking stars into existence. This God who is mysteriously one in three and three in one. This God who turns mocking laughter into this infectious joy. The God whose promised blessing to set all things right still stands. Is anything impossible for God?